Let's jump in, Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. Help, Lord, us by your spirit to know its truth and to live it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This guy, Mark, makes a confession. His confession is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He wants to begin to tell us about who Jesus is. And he makes this confession. Today, I'm going to ask you to make a confession. A confession is an agreement. And it's something public. I'm going to ask you, if you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, at the end of this service, to do that. To do that. Those of you who have, you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you know that He's your Savior, and you're following Him to confess Him in this supper called the communion. Did y'all know that this supper is actually a confession? We're agreeing with God about something when we take this supper. And we're confessing something very public when we take the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at this text, and I'm going to lead us into two confessions. I'm also going to show you from this text two very important confessions made, one by a Jewish man and one by a Gentile. Uh, One by a religious man and one by a, a pagan about who Jesus Christ is. They both make confessions. Notice that Mark begins this way in the beginning of the gospel. He wants everyone reading this gospel to make sure they have first things first, that they know who Jesus Christ is before moving on, that they have a good Christology or theology of Christ, that they understand the nature and makeup of who this Lord is, who is called the Christ, the Son of God. It's important that we have first things first. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. One day, we all as believers hope to stand before the Lord and hear these words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Do you want to hear that one day? If that's the long view, then we make sure that we each day live with that long view in mind. First things first. Get things right. Urgent things come and sometimes take the place of important things, don't they? But if we're going to be successful at anything, first things have to be first. And the first thing is to know who Jesus Christ is. Now to do this, let's look at the writer to begin this study. His name is Mark. He's also known as John Mark in the scriptures. He was a young man who had often people of God in his house. His mother Mary exposed him to people like Barnabas, who was a man you can read about in the book of Acts. She exposed him to a man by the name of the Apostle Paul, who gave us most of the New Testament. He was also exposed to another apostle by the name of Peter. Most likely, Mark had In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ in his house. So as a young man, 
his mother, maybe his father early on, we don't know much about his dad, exposed young Mark to godly people. Parents, how important do you feel this is? To make sure that your children are exposed to godly people. Next, as a young man, Mark, after being raised in a spiritual home, decided that he would serve the Lord by being a servant. He joined the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on a mission journey to assist them. He joined Peter to assist Peter. He was willing to put himself in service to the Lord by offering his service to men of God. As a result, as a result, God raised up young John Mark to be a pastor. It's widely believed that he became a pastor in Alexandria, but he became, as we now know, a proclaimer of the gospel and has given us this incredible book. He was also a man, not only who was a servant, but was faithful to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and do so in clear terms. I would just ask you as parents, just for a moment, to ask yourself this question. Does my and does our family schedule allow for the discipleship of my children and teenagers so that they both are being exposed regularly to godly people and using their time and energy in service to the Lord? I think both are important. I can remember when our kids were growing up, it seemed like our schedules were dictated by sports, recitals, birthday parties. Who knew there could be so many birthday party invitations? Growing up, we just had a birthday. You're grateful if you got cake and some presents, let alone having people over and having blow-up stuff in your yard. We never experienced that. But we did growing up with our kids, examinations. At one time, we were considering homeschooling our kids, and we decided we would. And uh, here's why. My wife and I looked at our schedules, and we're like, do we want to homeschool our kids? And we're like, we're already spending eight hours on homework a night anyway, so we're already homeschooling them. It wasn't a hard, that wasn't really the reason we did what we did. It wasn't really a hard decision. Our schedules were so crammed full. How can we find time for everything? I think we just have to sometimes back up and evaluate our schedules. There's nothing wrong with theme parks and lakes and beaches. Nothing wrong with going and sitting in the stands or coaching ball. Nothing wrong with recitals. Nothing absolutely wrong with getting ready for exams that will better our kids' futures. But if we're neglecting the spiritual matters for those things, we're missing the main and first important matters. What are the first things? Evaluate your schedules. Talk about those things. For Mark, just in way of review, he was a man whose parents made sure that he knew who Jesus Christ was. He was a servant. No wonder, no wonder Mark wrote these words in Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now we have four Gospels in our New Testament, don't we? What are they, y'all? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
for perspectives of the Lord Jesus Christ, for helps to make us understand who, in fact, Jesus is. Matthew writes his gospel under the inspiration of the Spirit in order that we might know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and King. He wrote with a Jewish audience in mind. You have Luke, who was probably a Jew as well, but he writes really well to Gentiles. He was a medical doctor. He accompanied the Apostle Paul, and he talked about the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Who better than a medical doctor to talk about the perfect man? That's what Luke did. Then you have John. John wrote about the deity of Christ. He wanted the whole world, whether Jew or Gentile, to know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and that we are to believe on him. Now Mark. Mark wrote to a group of people in mind who are likely Roman. Likely Roman meant that they didn't understand a lot about Judaism. Mark does a good job of explaining Judaism and Jewish traditions to help us to understand in simple terms what Jesus was talking about or what Jesus was dealing with in his world. He also wrote to a group of people who were mostly slaves. Most of the Roman Empire served underneath someone and oftentimes had masters. Mark knew what it was to serve. And how important it was to serve. In fact, you can't lead, he would show, until you serve. So Mark is a great book. We know that Mark wrote this gospel. The early church taught us that he did. There are several historians, and you can find them easily online, so I'm not going to take all of that time and detail this morning to show you. But there are historians and church fathers who made the point to say that Peter, the apostle, had such great teachings and theology. Someone had to capture those things and write them. And Mark was given that task. Also, I want us to understand that Mark was around Paul. And you're going to see a lot of Pauline theology throughout the gospel, according to Mark as well. But in the end, Mark stands on his own two feet. This book was inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to you and I today so we might know who Jesus Christ is and knowing who he is, be willing to follow him with confidence and become fishers of men. So let's look at this this story. It's the greatest story of all and you're going to enjoy the gospel of Mark. It's speedy, immediate, energetic, I mean, Mark doesn't like drama. He's the original. In that he hated that type of stuff. He made no preparation for his audience sometimes to receive what he's taught. Just threw it out there. He doesn't spend time on the birth narrative. He doesn't use any ink to talk about Jesus' childhood experiences. But about a third of his book is about Jesus' last week of life. And he has more miracles in his book than any of the other Gospels. He's writing not to give us a narrative, a novel, or a biography about Jesus. He is expositing the truth about Jesus Christ. And is why we are going to take this line by line and verse by verse. We believe as a church in live expositional 
preaching. And we will do that through this text. Mark does not psychoanalyze Jesus or to try to bring to mind what Jesus might have had on his mind. That is very popular today. And because we have that popularity, there are lots of television shows, series, and movies about the life of Jesus that oftentimes do damage to the gospel. Mark teaches us, as well as the other gospel writers, we are not to try to think about what Jesus was thinking, but we are to look straightforwardly at what Jesus did and said. Jesus is the sum of the entire gospel that Mark shares here. And I want to give you the gospel that Mark shares. I want to give it to you in four ways. And so if you're taking notes, here's the four ways. We're going to look at the gospel Mark shares in verse 1. We're going to look at the start of the gospel, the source of the gospel, the sum of the gospel, and the scope of the gospel. And then we're going to make two confessions about the gospel at the end of this message. To begin with, the gospel. If you're taking notes... You might write this down. What is the gospel? And the answer is this. And it's number two on our children's outline. The gospel is the good news of God. It's the good news of God. It's not just any news. It's good news. Not just from anywhere. It's from God. William Tyndall wrote in 1525. If you know the name Tyndall, you know it because he was a he was an interpreter of God's word and a translator of God's word. He actually died for translating the scriptures. He translates the word gospel from the Greek, euangelion, this way. He says, it is a word clad in joyful news that makes the heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Gospel is good news. Anyone in the first century that heard the term gospel would have known it is a herald of hope. It is something coming to you from someone who has something good to say. So Mark says, I have something good to say to you. I have something good to say to you. And I want to begin with what that is. It is the, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at it. Look at verse 1, verse 1, the beginning. Everyone say the beginning. The beginning. So the beginning takes us back probably in our mind to Genesis 1-1. Adults are studying this in Bible study. And in Genesis 1-1 we have, in the beginning, God. What did God do in the beginning? He created the heavens and the earth. Uh, is God a plagiarist? Did he use any source material? He did not. He made everything from nothing. And he made it perfectly. Creation was made perfectly. Creation then was corrupted, wasn't it? Corrupted by sin. Right now, creation suffers because of sin. So you have here in Mark 1.1, in the beginning, a thought about the beginning of time. When there was a creation, and it was perfect. God put man in a garden, and it was right. God said about man, he's very good. But sin corrupted everything, and everyone. So there needs to be a recreation. There needs to be a redemption of sinful man. And here where Mark says in the beginning, our minds ought to go back to Genesis 1-1 to remember that the world was good. It is not now. It needs to be recreated. And that's what Mark wants to put forth as good news. Here's good news. 
Creation is corrupted. Man is sinful. But man can be redeemed. This is the gospel. The euangelion. The good news. The good news. The euangelion. The gospel is not only mentioned in the New Testament. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's mentioned in the Old Testament in terms that it should be proclaimed. should be heralded. It should be preached. Why? Because this is the only way man can be reclaimed. We are lost, sinful, separated from God, and the only way that we can be made right is through the gospel. The gospel. The way in which this is termed, like in the book of Isaiah, is this. The gospel euangelion is to be proclaimed, Lebashar. Lebashar has the idea of proclaiming something that is to be put into order. Lebashar, a Hebrew word, has in it a word Bashar, which means flesh. In other words, here's the good news. Everything's messed up. Everything's broken. But through flesh, God's going to put everything back in order. This is where Mark starts. Everything's broken. Everything is chaotic. But through flesh, the good news is God's going to put it back in order. Well, I want to know what that good news is. And so we find it here in the source of this good news or the start of this good news. It is a gospel that is given to us to redeem mankind back to God. Where is the source of this good news? Well, notice with me in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone say of Jesus. Now drop down to verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of who? So the gospel of Jesus is, in fact, the gospel of God and is the gospel that Jesus preached. Mark wants us to be presented with this. Therefore, the source of this good news is God. The good news comes from heaven. Children, that's where the good news is from. The good news of Jesus Christ comes from God from heaven. This is not just any good news. This past week I asked the church if you would be in prayer for a friend of ours by the name of Anna, who's a missionary, and she um, contracted a really horrible disease. And uh, she's in a third world country, and so the medical care there, not what, what we would hope. And so we were praying that, that, that everything would go well with her health. She's actually the daughter of one of my best friends in the world. And so I got the message from him after asking, how is she doing? Fever's broken. She's doing well. She's on the mend. That was good news. I, I sent this text to him, Proverbs 25, 25. Because he's in America. She's in another country. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Come on, y'all. We have good news from a far country. We're in sin. Because we're in sin, we live constantly in darkness and in death. And we have, in, we have need of hope. And we're looking for how we could have that hope. And the hope comes from heaven. And it's good news. It's good news only because of the source from heaven. The source tells us what the good news effects. What it effects. The good news affects us because we are in need of saving. 
This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, that name means Savior. We're in need of saving. We're in need of saving because we are enslaved to our sin, incarcerated by our transgression. We need someone to set us free. And the good news says we can be set free. In 1940, the the Nazi Germans constructed a concentration camp in Poland, and you know the name of it, Auschwitz. It is one of the most feared remembrances of modern times because we see in Auschwitz the depravity, I mean the deep, dark wickedness of man. In Auschwitz, over 1.1 million Jews that were were killed during the Holocaust were murdered. In fact, about 85% of Prisoners who went to Auschwitz actually died. But some survived. And when they were liberated, most of them who were in the prison camps watched the soldiers, the Nazis, leave on the same train cars that they were brought in on. And as the Nazis were running for their life, they had no idea what was going on. Most of those 7,500 were too emaciated to stand up on their own two feet. They couldn't even call out. They were on the brink of death. One, and you can read so many testimonies, one gave testimony of waking up in a soldier's barrack. And in that soldier's barrack, waking up after having been in Auschwitz, not knowing what was going on, woke up in a barrack feeling as though he was in a five-star hotel. Because he was 21 years of age and he was down to 72 pounds. And he had no clothes and in Auschwitz almost froze to death to the point they thought he was dead, the soldiers, and they threw him on the pile of bodies until he began to move. And he woke up and he heard the words, you have been liberated. You are free. This is the news that we need. We may not see ourselves in that dire strait, but we're worse off. In sin, we are dead to God, separated from Him, and on our way to a devil's hell. And unless we have someone coming to rescue us and set us free, we are doomed. This is why Mark sets out in the beginning to say, this is the good news that I want you to know. And not only the good news, but the good name of that good news. That leads to the third way I want you to see this gospel in the sum of the gospel. Notice the sum of the gospel on Mark 1.1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. To reiterate, Jesus Christ is our Savior. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Who does Yahweh save? He saves sinners. We need saving. Isaiah said this, all of our iniquities have separated us from God. And our sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear you. God doesn't look at us in our sin. He doesn't listen to our prayers. We are all sinners by nature, born in iniquity, and we choose on our own volition to sin and rebel against God. We're born self-centered. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each gone our own way. Because of this... And because death has been brought on us by our ultimate father, Adam, Romans 5.12 says, 
we are all destined to die because of our sin. Physical death is in our future. We know that. And it's simply an omen, if you can will, for a greater death. The Bible speaks of a second death. In Revelation 21.8, it is the lake of fire. Because we've sinned, we are destined to hell. Therefore, our only hope is good news that there could be a Savior who could come and rescue us from our plight. Why Mark says, his name is Jesus. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. He's the only way to salvation. As one person said, he's not a good way to be saved. He's not the best way to be saved. He is the only way to be saved. He's Christ. Notice Mark doesn't stop there. He's Jesus Christ. Christ is the title for our Lord and Savior. Christ means king, which means he reigns on a throne. We see this in the confession of Peter. If you have your Bibles, two confessions before we close. One is from Peter, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Jesus Christ goes to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples in Mark chapter 8. He's there with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi of all places. This is not Caesarea by the sea, but it's more inland. It's a place where there are a great deal of Jewish people who are idolaters. Idolatry, even child sacrifice, rampant in this city. Jesus comes to a river, uh, the Banas River that flows into the Jordan. It is an interesting river because up from it is a spring that flows into this river and into the Jordan. And at this river, Jesus asked the disciples a very poignant question. Who do people say that I am? Some said... The disciples were speaking, John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been beheaded, so they're thinking Jesus had been maybe John the Baptist reincarnated, or Elijah, or one of the prophets reincarnated. Interestingly, the Jews of Jesus' day, like many Jewish people and others of our day, feel when you die, you just go on to be some sort of spirit in some sort of kingdom. The Jews thought you just go into the kingdom. Jesus is going to lay bare to that. He's going to lay bare to that. and He's going to fell that tree. He's going to say, no, there's no reincarnation. So he looks at the Peter and he says to the disciples with Peter, he says, Peter, who, who do men say that I am? Peter finally speaks up for the disciples. I should say he says to the disciples, Peter speaks up and he says what God gives him. You are the Christ. It's right there at that place where Jesus in front of this river that is the source of life for so much of that region and a source of idolatry that Jesus could say, you're right. I am the one who's the source of life. I am the one who rules and reigns. And all these other gods, they are stupid, dumb idols. They have no power. And if you seek after them, you seek them at your own demise because the only source of life is Christ the King who rules on a throne and he gives life to all who are willing to bow to his crown. This is the confession that all of us must make. 
If we, true, if we truly are going to be followers of Christ, we must say, you are king. You're worthy of my life. You're worthy of everything that I am. And bow to the crown, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's also the son of God. Notice the last of this verse. He's not only Christ the king, he's the son of God, which takes me to the last confession, which is how Mark finalizes this book and knows where he's going. He starts at the right place. He ends at the right place. First things first means last things can be last. The right things first, the best things are last. Mark begins with telling us Jesus is God. He wants Romans to know this. And he points out that at the cross of Jesus Christ, in Mark chapter 15, stands a Roman soldier, a pagan, an idol worshiper. Most likely, he stood and organized and carried out the execution of many criminals on crosses. But he's never seen anyone like this Jesus Christ who has a placard, the king. In fact, this one Jesus is not like anyone he's ever seen and he dies like no one he's ever witnessed. In Matthew, Mark chapter 15, Mark records how that this soldier looks up to Jesus and he sees him, that is Jesus, breathing his last. It is a mindful way that Mark shows us that Jesus did not have a sudden death, but a sovereign death. He did not have his life taken from him. He laid his life down. No one on this earth killed him. He gave his life willingly as a sacrifice to be crushed by the Father. And when he accomplished the work, he then sovereignly breathed his last. So that a pagan, Roman, war-hardened soldier said, Surely this was the Son of God. This is where, and this is all introductory to Mark. This is what Mark has in between the bookends of Mark chapter 1-1 one, one and that confession that Jesus Christ indeed is the Son of God. But Peter and this soldier both have to get past their words and their head to make sure that this is a confession of their life. What they thought and what they understood to be true, both Peter and the soldier have to really believe. This is why Jesus said, I am preaching the gospel of the kingdom and you must repent and believe. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus began proclaiming the kingdom of God, the gospel of God, and he said, repent and believe. Martin Luther was a, was a man used of God in the 1600s. Martin Luther, in the 1600s, preached one of his last sermons at his church. 
with one eye because he had cataracts in the other, his body so broken down from physical use that he could barely walk. He said in his last sermon, or at least one of them, to his church, this is a man who came out of a false religion and embraced the true gospel. I fear some of you are going back to that false religion. Why would he say that? Well, there's a group in his church that affirmed that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried the the third day he rose according to the Scriptures. They, They affirmed all those things to be true, but just to cover their bases, just in case that wasn't enough, they went back to their religion. Maybe some were going back to the Lord's Supper to say, just in case my faith is not enough, I'll practice the Mass. Just in case I want to cover my bases to make sure I get to heaven. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm right with God, I better get baptism. I better give. I better do good works. That group of people Luther was concerned about. And I am sure Mark was concerned about as well. Because from beginning to the end of his gospel, he wants us to know there is no other way to be right with God but through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And I'm talking to some people here today that have a faith in Jesus Christ. You do. You you believe what I said today. You haven't disagreed with anything I've said today. You agree that Jesus is Savior, that He's King and Messiah, ruling from a throne, coming back again, and that He, in fact, is God, God in the flesh. You believe that. But not enough to leave all of your other safety All of your other life rafts. And if you're ever going to be truly born from above, it will be because you leave your religion and your self-righteousness and everything you're counting on other than Jesus Christ in the dust. Like the disciples do in verse 17. And follow Him. I want to ask you, would you be saved today? For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. You have nothing to offer but your sin. But if you'll give your sin to Christ, you can be saved. Jesus, the Savior of sinners, is king on a throne who can set you free, who is God the sovereign, who can make you his own child. Would you be saved? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us this, the beginning of the gospel in Mark 1. The beginning of an incredible study. But Lord, today there are those in this room right now who know they're not saved because they are counting on other things along with their faith. I pray today they'll be saved. That they'll turn loose of anything other than the cross. 
Say, Pastor, I need to be saved. I need to once and for all call on God to save me. I need to once and for all put my trust completely in Jesus Christ. Well, then today, why don't you be saved? Why don't you turn from your sin, repent, and believe on the Lord Jesus? Would you call out to him? Would you say, God, do this? If you want to be saved, call out to God. Say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I have broken your law. I deserve death and hell. I, I do. But I believe that Jesus came and in my place lived and in my place died. Took the penalty I deserve. I believe Jesus is alive, rose again from the dead and is our sovereign Lord. Today I confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And I'm willing to turn and trust and follow you. Thank you for your grace to save me. I put all my trust in you. You're enough. You're enough. And so I count on no good works of mine. I put all my trust in you. Thank you today for saving me, Lord. Thank you that you have given me what I don't deserve. And God, by your mercy, you've forgiven my sin. In Jesus' name, amen.